the Jesus that they follow says to love, you know, God with everything and their your neighbor as yourself. But when Jesus is making this statement, he's talking about loving people who aren't like you, uh, don't talk like you, come from the same social location, etc. And you know, I kind of go a little deeper in that verse. I'm like, well, if you if we are to love our neighbors, we also have to love and respect the neighborhoods uh, that shape the neighbor. And also we have to be concerned about the issues that that neighborhood faces, right? This is episode 103 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. My name is Matt Bruff and I'm your host for today. We have a really great interview with Terrence Lester. Terrence is the founder of Love Beyond Walls, which is a nonprofit organization focused on poverty awareness and community mobilization. And he is the author of the book, When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. So this was just a great conversation that I had with Terrence last year in 2021. I know this is coming out now in 2022. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's so great to have you on the podcast, Terrence. I really appreciate you giving the time today uh, for this. Matt, it's great to be here. And uh, it's my pleasure to even meet you. I'm excited about our conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, This podcast that we do is, is called Spirituality for Ordinary People. And as I read through your book, When We Stand... It struck me that this might be a book that is about encouraging ordinary people to get involved in seeking justice. And uh, it's really about seeking justice together in community. Uh, And I really believe, and I know there's lots of people who've written about this as well, that spirituality and the work of justice are really connected. So I want to get to that connection. But before we get too far, I want to hear from you when we're talking about justice. what What do we mean when we're talking about justice? And you can maybe give a little bit of your context as well, just to kind of let us know who you are and how you how you work. Yeah, sure. So my name is Terrence Lester. I am the founder and executive director of a not-for-profit organization called Love Beyond Walls. We're based in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we are an organization that advocates on behalf of uh, people experiencing homelessness and or poverty. And uh, over the years, we have been intentional about building communities uh, with people who are houseless, um, you know, building bridges between groups of people who probably wouldn't come from the same social locations as a way of walking with uh, persons out of the plights of homelessness. Because there's a lot of barriers that exist um, uh, in 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 one's ability to escape, like for instance, I was talking here recently about uh, many cities, many cities uh, in the United States that have started to um, implement ordinances that criminalize what it means uh, to be houseless. Uh, one in particular, I'll kind of lift up uh, was this in South Carolina. It's a city called Port Royal. Uh, They recently in January, as of this year, banned sleeping outside altogether. And so if there are no beds in a shelter and you are found camping outside, you can be fined $500 or even given 30 days in jail. And so uh, when you read the ordinance, it talks a little bit about, 
you know, we want to keep the community safe, uh, et cetera. Uh, but the missing narrative is that there's this notion that to be without an address means that you're somehow criminal. And um, the criminalization of homelessness within itself connects uh, to the criminal justice system, because if you can't uh, afford five hundred dollars, they put you on probation. And if you can can't continue to pay the fees, then you kind of find yourself in a cycle. But what if you don't have access to identification cards and, um, you know, access to sanitation um, uh, to keep yourself uh, clean? Uh, We've seen that here in COVID and all of these things to kind of, you know, build the toolbox, if you will, uh, in your attempt to, um, you know, escape the plight. And so, We've been doing this work in helping people to get access to housing and, you know, recover identification cards and reunite with families and all this stuff for almost a decade. And, you know, I count on the great privilege of of doing uh, that work. And um, if I'm to answer your question about what is justice, you know, I think justice is giving uh, the people of God. Uh, no matter what social location you're from, uh, the ability to have equitable access uh, to resources that would allow that person to experience what Jesus defines as an abundant life, right? And if there are systemic things in the way of that, then justice rights um, or tries to correct those things to give uh, persons who are at a dis- disadvantage uh, the same equal opportunities as other persons uh, of a society or, or culture. And it doesn't matter where a person is from or their background or you know any problems that they may have had growing up or some of the decisions that they've made just because a person like, for instance, I'm talking from my framework, just because a person experiencing homelessness um, uh, may be someone that you can see the visible signs of uh, impoverishment or the visible signs of, you know, whatever it is that people try to use as myths to, to define someone does not mean that they aren't the beloved of God and deserving of having their uh, inherent worth and value affirmed and even given an opportunity to access some of the same things that other people get to, to access. So that's my spiel. That's great. Um, why do you think, yeah, well, I think you mentioned this in the book too, that, that people who uh, there's a lot of people have had a heightened awareness about injustices. And I think that's particularly true in the last couple of years, actually, um, with uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, with George Floyd's death. I know there's things here in Canada around uh, the raising of uh, further uh, injustices toward Indigenous persons in Canada. Um, Why is there still so much apathy, do you think? Because I think you also frame that out in the book, just saying that there's, there's actually, even though there's this heightened awareness, there's there's actually quite, there's not enough action, right? There's, there's still so much inaction taking place. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a a few reasons and I know it's probably many more, but um, when I think about the way that we consume or are 
made aware of injustice um, is all from a smart device. You know, uh, I'm pretty sure people still traditionally watch, you know, news stations or read the papers. But I mean, just think about it at any given point, you can access multiple injustices happening all around the world at the same time from the palm of your hand. And for many people, uh, that's overwhelming. I know sometimes it's overwhelming for me uh, to see, like, for instance, right now, what's going on in Afghanistan or to see what's happening uh, in Haiti. Uh, Also to see what's happening uh, in terms of maybe voter suppression uh, in certain parts of the U.S. or to see what's happening in terms of the erasure as it relates to to black and brown history. Right. Um, And all of those things compounded creates this sort of social media trauma, right? Mm. Or digital trauma that, you know, kind of builds apathy because, you know, people are left with the question of how, what can I do? Even, even those who are really passionate, um, you know, when you're bombarded with this type of information at this fast of rate, then it kind of leaves you paralyzed, and you're kind of wondering, like, what can I do? What can I contribute? And and those types of questions uh, kind of like sets people up to feel like they have nothing to offer. Uh, and then there's, um, you know, a group of people who are just, you know, not not wanting to lean in and and really understand um, the existential experiences or the realities of others. Uh, maybe they are, you know, holding fast to their ideologies of whatever, uh, you know, social learning that has developed them in the way that they view the world or shape their worldviews. And it's hard for them to really understand how they can love a neighbor that may have a, a different set of experiences uh, than themselves, which in many ways is really sad, right? Because you know, sometimes these persons are even Christians, right? And uh, the Jesus that they follow says to love, you know, God with everything and their your neighbor as yourself. But when Jesus is making this statement, he's talking about loving people who aren't like you, uh, don't talk like you, come from the same social location, etc. And you know, I kind of go a little deeper in that verse. I'm like, well, if you if we are to love our neighbors, we also have to love and respect the neighborhoods uh, that shape the neighbor. And also we have to be concerned about the issues that that neighborhood faces, right? Uh, You can't separate a person uh, from their historical, uh, you know, kind of uh, shaping, right? Um, And then I I think there's another group uh, that is kind of on the fringes where they may know what they can offer they just don't feel like what they have to offer would be enough uh, to um, correct or make right the weight of the injustice uh, that exists in the world. And, you know, I, what I like to use as a metaphor of, of the puzzle, um, we've all had puzzle boxes where, you know, we're trying to create this image on the front of the box and, you know, I, the metaphor is that everybody's been given a piece, right? And some people uh, try to measure their pieces up against somebody else's contribution. And it's like, 
well, my piece is really small or my piece won't make a big difference. Um, but the idea of a puzzle within itself is that every single piece matters. And that's what I've been trying to communicate uh, in the book that we're talking about is that in community, when pieces come together, uh, it creates more peace. That's a double and tundra right there. But, you know, and we are to steward whatever role that God has given us in the story and the uniqueness of, of this story and uh, be confident that whatever you have been given uh, when you offer that in collaboration or in partnership with other people in community, that's when we get a chance to really see uh, beautiful things happen. Do you think maybe to like, do you think there's a, a group of people that are actually looking at the cost to them? Maybe this is the same as the, as the last group where they, they can see the need. They can see that they've got some resources, but I think in particular, I, maybe I'm speaking for myself in a way is that, I'll look at I if I get involved in X whatever whatever social issue that's going to consume my time like that's the thing that I'm worried about the most is my time yeah. less e- even more than my money maybe um others it might be it might be different they might be worried about well is this a wise use like there's you know 300 charities I could help and is this one the wise use? And they got sort of bogged down in that, and then and then it's decision making and that kind of thing. So, is there something about uh, sort of looking at oh, this is going to cost me, or this is going to really really change my life? Like this is going to affect my life, and I, I don't I kind of like my life right now. Like this is kind of speaking from that position of privilege, right? Like you can see, I'm a white middle aged guy, um, and so I have a lot of privilege, and. And it's, I have a decent life, you know, I have a good family and I can go up to my parents' place at the cottage. I was telling you about that before and not everyone has that. And if I choose to kind of get involved, I know that that's in some way going to be a sacrifice or a loss for me. And I don't know, I feel like there's a group of people that really just plain don't want to do that. Like, I don't, I, I want to have my cake and eat it too. So I'm happy to share, but as long as I've got all my cake, you know, um, but I feel like the, the call of Christ is, is way different than that, right? Like the call of Christ is <laughs> actually to pick up your cross and follow, to actually sacrifice, to, to be well aware that, yeah, this is going to change my life. And I have no control over how that's going to change, whether it's going to be for, you know, me experience that as loss or whether it's going to be beautiful and wonderful and more full. Actually, I don't know. And I'm called to I'm called to jump in anyway. So I, I think that's the challenge I have personally. I'll name that for, for me that that's my challenge. Um, but I wonder if there's others out there too that are that are maybe facing that same kind of thing or maybe aren't thinking it through as much and are just like, I'm hesitant because I've got a decent life and I don't actually want to. So I'll just I'll just share things on that social media machine uh, <laughs> and say I support things and 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 share the memes and that kind of thing, but won't actually get involved. Yeah. Man, such great points. I think uh, one of the points that you raise about busyness is, um, you know, I think that's widespread. I don't think it's, you know, assigned to a particular group of people. I think, uh, you know, busyness within itself has been communicated in this almost glorified superhero, superwoman 
right. super uh, person, you know, type of way that, you know, if you're busy enough, then that somehow means that you're more important or you're more worthy or, um, you know, we kind of associate worth and value with, you know, productivity, right? When uh, that is actually countercultural to even the life and witness of Jesus, because we see even in the scriptures where Jesus would pull aside and he would, you know, have hard boundaries uh, to rest and replenish. I mean, you know, the Mary and Martha uh, story when he, he says, hey, this is the good thing just to pause for a moment. And I think busyness within itself keeps us from uh, joining God in the work uh, that God is doing, uh, whether it's in communities or related to social issues, etc. And I oftentimes say it's not a matter of willingness, it's a matter of availability. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of willing people they're just not a lot of available people. And I think one of the things that we have to get real, real, real about, and I mean, I talk about this myself and there's times throughout the year where I have to, to look at what's on my plate and ask myself, are the things that are consuming my time, do they have any eternal value? Are they really that important? Or could I, you know, create the type of margin in my life where service doesn't come some type of mystical thing that only happens <laughs> uh, once a few times a year. It's something that is intrinsically a part of the core of the fabric of who I am and the fabric of of my uh, family. You know, oftentimes even say that, um, you know, I don't treat service or involvement or action as punishment for my children. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm not waiting for my children to be ungrateful for all of the things that they've been blessed with or have access to to say, let me drag you down to a soup kitchen to show you how poor people live. I actually think that's toxic and it's reinforcing this idea that poor people are other rise, right? Mm-hmm. And instead, I've always taught them to build out uh, a service as a rhythm, or we are actively involved as a rhythm. It's just like going to the cottage or to the movies or out to eat or to serve. And that's a part of the core fabric of how we exist in, as a family. But you have to be really intentional about making involvement and action a rhythm. I think when we treat, uh, you know, being involved in the things um, that are going on around us or, you know, the things that I know Jesus probably himself would be involved in, then we are kind of communicating to ourselves and even the context of our families that these things are optional. I think that's what you're alluding to, uh, that following Jesus, you know, kind of (laughs) we are obligated to take up our cross. We're obligated uh, to live countercultural. We are obligated to affirm the poor and to be with the weary and to um, show compassion to those who have been overlooked in society and culture to uh, love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And sometimes that places us in the context of uh, what we see Jesus talking about in the Good Samaritan parable, where 
The guy was left on the side of the road, uh, half dead. And it costed the Samaritan something to, to pick him up, to go where he was, to, to spin, right? And I think that is uh, what one scholar suggests is the gospel within the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus does for us, um, comes to where we are, you know, picks us up, and it sacrifices something. It costs him something. And how dare we uh, say that we're following uh, Jesus if we are not also including that 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 bit of sacrifice. And it's it's not to say, you know, you're a bad person if you're not doing this. And I want to make this clear. You're a bad person if you're not serving. It doesn't communicate that God loves you any less. Um, what I am saying is that because God loves you a lot, uh, because there are things going on in the world, because we follow Jesus uh, and we take up our cross, uh, then we also have to be aware and have Samaritan eyes to say, where can we go to see people who may be on the side of the road, have dead, and really display the, the love of God in that way? Mm-hmm. And uh, incidentally, uh, the Good Samaritan story, um, I'm actually preaching on that this Sunday, um, but this, oh, nice. this will air later. But um, <laughs> but he was a Samaritan uh, that's another example of difference, right? The the ones who are closer to the man's ethnicity and religion, uh, the priest and the Levite, they walk on by, and it's the one who is radically different and really an enemy who stops and and does the helping in that story. So there's another thing to learn in there as well about that, that um, we're actually intended to encounter uh, people who are not like us, um, and uh, and to do that sometimes in the context of serving, but also just in the context of relationships. Like, um, and, and to me, that's something that can be beautiful about the church. Sometimes the church is seen as like the most segregated place in society, but there are other churches where it really isn't, um, where it's actually one of the most diverse places, and where where you can actually meet people who are quite different from you. Um, so yeah. Anyway. Uh, I wonder too, I I like what you said at the beginning. I like the thing about the puzzle piece as well, because I think we can sort of get overwhelmed with, well, I I don't know about helping the guy on the side of the road. Well, okay. But your puzzle piece might be different. Like that's okay. Um, There might be some other, other place, some other gift that you have that you're going to be able to offer. Um, And I do like what you said about this overwhelm. Um, I read an article recently about this, about how we're created actually to be able to, take in the pain and uh, empathize in the context of our village. Um, I don't know if you, I think it was by Nadia Boltz Weber. I don't know if you've seen this article. Yeah, um, I saw it. And, and we were not created to take in the pain and the empathy of, you know, the entire world all at once. Um, but we are created to do that in, in localities. Right. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, so I wonder like what advice you might give to someone who is maybe, uh, somewhat convicted, maybe not even necessarily from this conversation, but maybe from just everything that they're seeing in the world and thinking like, oh, I'm worried. I, I'm concerned about Haiti. I'm concerned about Afghanistan. I'm concerned about things that are going on, but I don't even know what do I do? Um, what would you encourage someone like if they were thinking about like what first step they can take? How can they take a step to being intentional? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, well, I, I think one of the things that is often overlooked is, you know, just, you know, blindly jumping into something where, 
by which you, you may get involved, but there's no real intentional um, thought behind how do I get involved, but stay involved. Mm. And, you know, I, I ask people, you know, yeah, obviously we, we get a chance to support different things. And if you really feel convicted and compassionate about it, by all means do it, but don't do that and then retreat back and never do anything else until the next thing. Um, I really try to encourage people to research and find out what's going on around them, you know, because there, there are issues going on right in, in their, um, in their backyard. There are issues that's going on that maybe they haven't even realized or paid attention to that they haven't even had this conversation with, with people in their own community um, or their church community. Um, I oftentimes ask people to start to, to look at and look and do this research because that's, that's really important, but not just doing this research, but opening up the door to, to have this conversation with, you know, community members around them, uh, where they don't feel alone or isolated in the things that they feel very called and uh, passionate about. Um, there's opportunities out there that are around them that if they were to get plugged in to, they would meet people uh, who have, you know, this like-mindedness or um, who are also able to give them even more insight. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's like you start on the, the higher level where it's like, yeah, I want to get involved, but don't allow just your involvement in this to cause you to not be involved into the next wave of something. I, I truly believe that local change uh, creates the sort of national change that creates the, the sort of um, global change. And uh, another point that I would like to point out is just kind of, you know, I think it's important for people to know their role and know their capacity and know what they can contribute and have to offer because, you know, also if you are getting involved and it becomes like the checkbox type of deal um, or you overextend yourself or you, you're giving something that doesn't even bring you any sense of joy when you show up to serve, then you're also doing something that is uh, defeating the purpose. Uh, I think it's, you know, important for a person to really take that intrinsic internal assessment of like, you know, looking at what their puzzle piece even entails, you know, before they just like throw the puzzle piece around from different, from place to place, you know, what, what makes you come alive? What upsets you? What keeps you up at night when you wake up in the morning, you know, asking yourself, you know, if you had the power to change anything, what, what would that one thing that rises to the top be, you know? And then from there, just like, when, when do you start? You know, how do you build in uh, the time uh, creating that margin that we talked about earlier where you may start off? I don't know. I've seen people start off with giving an hour a week or an hour every other week, and they grew that until like, you know, it's two hours a week if persons have the margin. And sometimes people sit back and they say, well, what can 30 minutes do? 30 minutes can do a lot when you have a, a thousand other people given 30 minutes. <laughs> I mean, do the math on that. Right. Um, and sometimes we, we feel that if we aren't giving 
what we want to give that even what we give is not enough. And that is a lie. And that is a myth. Um, and I just want to push back against that. That's really great. Um, I love that so much. And I think people looking at like, what time, what time can I give? Uh, and when, when can I do that? So if people say, well, I can do five hours a month, you know, I can come down once a month and I've got five hours on this Monday or whatever. Um, and, and try to also figure out, like, if I, I think if people are passionate about something, you might even be starting with just some education. You might even be just starting with, okay, I'm going to read, like, what can I read? What course can I take? And that's maybe the stepping stone to deeper involvement as well. Um, I don't know that education is always the end goal. I think it's always a good thing. It's always a yeah. good thing to keep getting educated. Um, but also, if you do that, if you can find a way to do that in community as well, I think that really helps. Because then again, you meet people... And that can lead to something else that can lead to some other way that you might get involved. Um, so I'd encourage people to do that if they're unsure as well. But I really like what you're saying about, you know, what do you act assess? What are you actually passionate about? Uh, that's really, really good. Um, I wanted to ask you about a section of your book that talks about uh, diversity and inclusion. And, uh, and I was really fascinated by this. So I just want to read a, a quote um, from the book so you say while diversity invites people to the table inclusion empowers them to be heard while at the table diversity without inclusion is shallow marketing i do not wish to sit at any tables that want my skin for marketing but not my voice for truth and perspective uh, so can you say a little more about the difference between what you call surface level diversity and true inclusion and how we can each work toward the latter? How can we work towards true inclusion? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I, I've given a lot of um, talks on DEI uh, work, uh, diversity, equity and inclusion which oftentimes DEI uh, actually omits um, the B and the A, which is belonging and access. Mm. Um, and it also assumes that persons of color occupy predominantly white spaces in large numbers when that is not even the case. And so um, I've also been a part of settings where, you know, I've been invited to uh, give talks to predominantly uh, white audiences. And um, there was this sort of tailored, um, you know, kind of censored, uh, structured conversational approach to, you know, what would be said and how it would be said and, you know, how to kind of carry yourself and what, what type of, of, of things the audience needs to hear versus what they don't need to hear. And it's almost like this, you know, approach of being diverse in terms of physicality and terms of uh, representation but it didn't really flesh out in the inclusion part of it because the inclusion piece uh, allows a person uh, similar to myself, I'm a, a black male or black man in America, 
to really give, you know, a rich and robust and truth-filled perspective of my existential experiences. And, you know, I've seen it, man. I've seen where, and I've been a part of it where, you know, my skin color was used for like marketing purposes, purposes where it's like, oh, we're just going to, you know, get a black guy to come and represent all black people when that is not even the case or mm-hmm. represent this particular subject so we can appease uh, some sense of guilt or shame, uh, but we're not going to really allow him to communicate all of what he has to carry. Yeah. Um, and that's, that does damage. Um, and it's heavy for myself to carry and other persons of color to carry, uh, to be placed on platforms or invited to tables, um, only to not really be given, um, an opportunity to be our full selves. The other thing too, about that is that people miss is that when you get a chance to invite a person of color to the table, um, it automatically communicates that you still maintain some centering and power because the table belongs to you. Um, And real inclusion and empowerment and equity sometimes will ask you to leave your own table and to go sit at someone else's table um, to posture yourself as student, um, to decenter yourself in a way where you get the chance to hear from God's beloved that is not like you uh, because God's community, God's family is not monolithic. Um, God's diversity is expressed in all of creation. And so uh, when we try to diminish, uh, you know, one aspect or one group of people um, and not include all of their voice and, you know, kind of censor and edit and embrace and all that stuff, man, then I think we're doing, uh, God a disservice because we're not honoring uh, the diversity of God in all creation. Yeah. So would you say uh, that then one of the ways to work toward that is also like how, how does someone with power, I guess, uh, what more can they do? Yeah. I've they- seen, I've seen people like, man, I was given a talk. Uh, I forget where I was. And one of my, um, my buddies, he's, he's a white guy. He says, well, Terrence, like, how do I, how, I mean, where do I, where do I start? And I said, well, let's just look at your routine. I say, tell me about what coffee shops you go to. Where do you hang mm-hmm. out? And I mean, we went through this whole list and everything that he named was white. Man. I said, when, when was the last time you went and sat in a black coffee shop or a black establishment or you know, uh, an establishment that is uh, led by a person of color or, you know, when have you gone off your normal routine beaten path to be intentional with, you know, being in spaces that aren't like the hegemonic spaces that you're accustomed to? And he said, I never thought about it. And that is the point. Um, one of the ways in which a person who is wanting to build intentional relationships is to incorporate this in their thinking, right? To the fact that you don't have to think about um, this, 
should communicate this idea that maybe I should be more intentional about the ways in which I am thinking about issues that affect other people other than myself, but not just stopping there. How can I engage in community and sit with and be with and be proximate to uh, those communities offering support? Um, You know, another thing is like, what books do you consume and read? You know, what narratives uh, have been uh, fed to you? I I remember I was doing another thing and I was, I was talking, Oh, I was talking with uh, IVP. They had me on the um, one of their podcasts and uh, I was talking about my shaping. Like I read a lot, I collect a lot of books. You know, when I went to seminary, all the persons I read were white. The perspectives were white. The theologians we talked about were white. Um, Only the reformers that we lifted up were right. Um, Like it was just like this, (laughs) <laughs> a huge white aesthetic, right, of like um, not being able to consume narratives that spoke to my essence and my shaping and my background. But it just doesn't stop there. Uh, it stops. Uh, it has stopped even with, you know, my white brothers and sisters. Like, who are you, who are you reading? Who are you learning from uh, that may be persons of color? Uh, How are you even lifting those voices is another thing. Um, You know, what tables have you gone to to sit at? You know, so sort of just first being intentional. Second, you know, kind of changing the what you're consuming. You know, Um, a third, I would say, you know, finding ways to be proximate, even if you start with one thing, you know, whereas one week you may go. You know, you may not go to your coffee shop. You know, you may find a, a a space in another community, not just as some like, you know, demonstrative type of task that you check off, but like really entering in a space with a, a posture where you are trying to immerse yourself to learn a culture that is not your own. Uh, it takes, you know, those steps to kind of decenter, but also realize that there are people who are of substance and value that have experiences and voices. It's almost sort of like this passing of the microphone, right? If you will, you know, you're not always trying to speak up for as much as you're using your power and privilege to pass a microphone. So somebody can speak for themselves. Right. I think there's a, there needs to be a recognition as well that the systems that we have, uh, whether it's government or I see it a lot in, in church systems as well are, they're old systems and they were established within uh, within a colonial culture. Like that's when they were established. And yes, they've changed. Like there's been changes along the way. And we think that, I know that I would often think, oh, those, incre- like we just keep min- making those incremental changes, just keep making it a little bit better. But the core of a lot of those structures are still essentially a colonial structure. And so that sure. makes it really hard to break out of that, right? Um, so I, I like your emphasis on on exposing yourself to other places that are they're still feeling the impacts of colonialism. But they're feeling yeah. it in a very different way, right? Rather than the beneficiary of that, they're feeling it on the other side of that. Um, and so I think that's a huge important thing. And I I don't know how much of that is really going on in in deep ways. Um, in the way that it should be, um, or in the ways that we can call into question our own systems. So I think as well about 
you know, we have um, quote unquote ethnic churches, which I hate that term, but we have it. Um, and, uh, and so we'll have a number of those say in our denomination or in our, um, you know, in our regional gathering. Um, but honestly, the voice is really muted, even though we look really diverse. Um, but the voice is really muted because of the way things are structured, the way things are set up. It's just not set up for that voice to really be heard in a meaningful way. Um, and it's a real tragedy. So, I mean, that just needs to be, we need to figure that out. Like there has to be a way to dismantle that. Um, and, and it's not, that isn't easy work for anybody. Like even for the people who have the power, that isn't easy work to figure out. We know it needs to change and it's hard to figure out how do we even, how do we even do it? So I think just some of that deep listening, like really actually taking the time to, to listen and be proactive in engaging that conversation and not just having that conversation with white, with white people at the table. Cause I've been at those as well, where a bunch of white right. people are talking about how can we be less uh, systemically racist? Right. Uh, right. Maybe we should be talking to other people. <laughs> right. Also like this, just not being performative is, yeah. is what you are describing where it's like, this is a performance to get us to the next thing. Yeah. Um, I think deep listening and um, also like deep reflection because to dismantle something means that you have to reflect on how it was structured, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and we have to, we have, we've got to get to a place where people are more willing to do that type of internal work. Because it's it's dual, it's both you know external and internal. Yeah, and I think all of this touches on what you said a bit earlier about you know the work of of justice is really about like it's about individual lives. You know, it's about actually helping people's lives make better, like loving our neighbor. But all of this is then about well, how do we then look at the interaction between neighbor and neighborhood, and then the structures that are in place that have enabled the situation that we have or created the situation that we have. Um, so we ought to do all of that. <laughs> so it's, it's challenging work, but a, a bit again, back to the puzzle pieces, like some people might be the person right on the street helping others might be, they, they have that as their experience and their, their understanding, but they might be working on a systemic side of, uh, or a protest side or something like that. Yes. Um, so I think we all have those roles to play as figuring out where do we fit into this, into this work. It's important work. Um, I, I want to quote from your book again, because uh, I love this section. Um, we've talked a bit about church. Lots of church people listen to this uh, podcast. Um, and I loved this uh, little section about, um, well, I'll just read it. When we spend countless hours preparing church bulletins or putting up decorations for events without giving a thought to the people outside the church who are suffering, there's a problem, not only with our priorities with but also with the way in which we view our mission as Christians. Um, I just wanted to read that out. I had questions, but I think we sort of covered them, but maybe we'll use that as the punctuation mark for what we've been talking about. Um, And I would just love to hear to a little more about um, love beyond walls and the work that you do. I would love to hear a little bit about how it all got started as well. And uh, I think people will be really interested in that story. Um, yeah. And then also, if anybody's uh, sparked by that, I know I've got 
uh, I actually have a few listeners in the in the US. So if there's people out in Atlanta who happen to be listening to this or in the Georgia area, they might want to know a little more about what you do. Yeah, for sure. Um, thank you for reading that quote. Um, Love Beyond Walls actually started underneath a bridge. Um, it was December 2013. Uh, my family was dropping me off underneath a bridge to live as a person experiencing homelessness. Um, I did it on two separate occasions and uh, for a combined uh, time frame of a little over a month. And so, you know, what, what, prom- what prompted you to want to do that? Yeah. I mean, I was building deep relationships with persons, you know, out in the community uh, that didn't have an address. Uh, one guy in particular, his name was Kurt. And I remember showing up every single week for a few months just having breakfast with him and we would stand outside of this abandoned building. Uh, it was a little section where there's tons of trash and waste and all that stuff. And that's where he slept. Mm-hmm. And so for a long time, almost a month in, he would tell me, you're going to stop coming, you know, or you're, you're not going to drop by anymore. Mm-hmm. And I just kept showing up and each time I would listen to aspects of his story until it was around November. He told me his entire story. He told me that he had lost his wife and child in a car accident and um, became severely depressed, couldn't function on his job, uh, lost everything and ended up behind the building. And I'll never forget responding. I was like, you know, why don't you allow me to like, you know, use some of my relationships, we can get you in the shelter. And, you know, at that time, it was a shelter that was around that slept, you know, hundreds of guys in chairs in a room, only one urinal. And he was describing, like, I wouldn't be able to go to sleep. I would be up all night trying to protect everything I own in this one bag. And I mean, he just kept going. He says, it's more safe out here behind this building than I would feel even, you know, in the shelter right close by. And then he turns to me, he says, why don't you do it? Hmm. And I'll never forget those words um, because it was a long drive home. And I just read uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Hmm. Didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life. I got home and I'm sitting around the table and my wife asked me what's going on because I had this look on my face. And I say, um, Kurt told me that he thought I should try living as a person without an address. And I say, um, I want to show up like Jesus did in this verse where Jesus takes off his, um, shoes, so to speak, to walk in the shoes of humanity. Um, And I want to be daring and bold enough to serve the population that I feel my heart is, you know, aching for in a way that I strip myself down in the same way to walk in those shoes. 
And I say, I, I think I'm supposed to to live on the streets. And my wife goes, what? And I said, yeah. And then we talked about it. Um, and a month later, with the permission of her and my young kids at the time, they were dropping me off underneath the bridge days before Christmas. And I remember talking about this and blogging about this and people were telling me, man, you're crazy. You know, you should be focused on your family around Christmas and all that stuff. But another aspect of the story is that I was actually focusing on my family and greater than that, I was trying to show my kids that it's better to be a gift and receive, um, yeah. which is very closely related to what Advent season is all about. Um, that we get a chance to partake in this, you know, the greatest gift of all. Um, and that we get a chance to also model what that means in our everyday lives. And so, yeah, uh, it was the cold of winter. Um, you know, it was raining the day they dropped me off. It was 10 degrees with a wind chill of seven, probably lower. Um, and this community or this encampment embraced me. You know, I let them know what I was doing and they rallied together and got me a tent and blankets and I didn't take anything. And I show, I saw this deep generosity from a community that didn't have much and contrasted to people who have access to everything that sometimes function uh, from this spirit of uh, selfishness and greed. And I'll never forget the, the first night we were standing around this campfire and uh, we were just, we were literally having to throw donated clothes into a fire because there's no firewood to stay warm. And I turned towards my friend, Tony, who had an illness underneath the bridge. And I say, how do you keep your, uh, your feet warm, man? My, my toes feel like popsicles because my shoes are wet and all this stuff. Without saying a word, Tony turns towards his tent, walks over, comes back, and gives me um, his last donated pair of socks. They continue to progress. I'm using my cell phone to document these experiences. And I'm also using, you know, the technology component of it to reunite the people that I'm around at that time with their family members to get them off of the streets. And uh, I was talking about ways in which people can get involved. And it kind of became like the seedbed or the formation of what it means to love beyond walls. It was not just like some idea. It was a full immersion in this experience and wanting to educate people the other, about the other side of what it means to live this every single second. Um, and we led people to faith under the bridge. We saw people leave their, their homes of comfort to come and be with and be among. And I just found that that was the, the greatest testament of how we could express um uh, the incarnational ministry of Jesus. And that's, that's kind of like the origin story. That's amazing. That's such a great story. Thank you for, for sharing that today. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask uh, one last question. I asked this of all uh, my guests, just about what spiritual practices you engage in, in your life uh, to stay connected with God or to stay focused on your calling. Yeah. Um, prayer uh, journal, um, <clears throat> I, I, I exercise, uh, and I do that 
with worship music. Um, I read. And I also try to create time where I sit in silence uh, in nature. And I, I think people are kind of like afraid of that, but I think there's some real value in just being quiet, not speaking, not trying to perform or write or like move or anything. And just, you know, kind of being with God in God's creation is um, very, very uh, powerful for me. That's great. Um, I think we touched on, people would have picked this up, but we were having a spiritual conversation as well in the middle of this yeah. around, around justice work. Um, but one of the things that, that I picked up on as well is this need for, uh, for Sabbath and a, and a break, like this need to not allow busyness to rule and this idea of sitting quietly in nature or having downtime, um, I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard to engage in the work of justice without that component um, because it's, it's, it can be challenging work in particular when you're giving so much of your life to that work, like you are. Um, so yeah, I will, I mentioned this off air, but you'll be added for sure to my prayer list of, uh, of people to be holding up in prayer. And I encourage my listeners to do the same. Um, if they want to connect with you or, uh, find I know people can go on Amazon, but if there's another place to find uh, your book or want to know more about Love Beyond Walls, is there a place they can go online to learn about that? Yeah, sure. They can. Um, I know people always use Google, but you can also uh, visit us at lovebeyondwalls.org or follow us on social media. And that's at Love Beyond Walls. That's Facebook, Facebook Instagram and Twitter. Very easy. I also want to say, um, as you people won't see this because it's an audio podcast, but uh, we can see each other, and I've been, I'm jealous of your book your bookshelf. <laughs> so you can see mine behind me, but yours is just extensive and and color uh, color coded, which is really nice too. <laughs> so. Yeah, thank you, man. I, I love love collecting books, reading books, and engaging in uh, critical thought, and I think it's important also in the in our formation, you know, for sure. Yeah. Mine was, um, this is weeded down, uh, from what I had at the church and there's still some in boxes as well. But when, when everything, when COVID happened and it was like, I'm not really going to be working at the church office. I'm going to come home, built these bookshelves and got like a subset up there on the wall in this small space I'm in. So (laughs) it's nice, man, but I really like yours. It's beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And it's, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to meet with you and chat with you. And um, I hope people who engage in this uh, walk away feeling empowered. Yeah. Thanks so much for this today, Terrence. Appreciate meeting you too. All right. Thank you, Matt.